On August 21st, 2017, the United States experienced an event that it had not seen for about a hundred years. Do you remember what that was? On that date, about two and a half years ago, a total solar eclipse was visible. It was visible within a slim viewing band that spanned the entire length of our country. It was especially unique for us in Maryville because Maryville fell within that slim little band, that narrow path where we could actually see the total solar eclipse. Now, what was interesting to me about this event was the cultural impact it had at the time. People traveled from far and wide to witness it. Local hotels were sold out. Parties were scheduled. Wedding proposals were even made during the eclipse. The solar eclipse dominated the news cycle, and pretty much everyone out in public was talking about it. It seemed like a really big deal at the time. But perspective is gained when something that seemed like a big deal is dwarfed by something that actually is a much bigger deal. There is a reason that COVID-19 is the news right now. It's important. I don't remember anything in my lifetime that has impacted the world like the coronavirus has down to the very details of the way that we live our everyday lives. We should take it seriously. COVID-19, coronavirus can be lethal, and it's affecting many lives in a significant way throughout the globe. But, Perspective for me came this week as I soaked in biblical truth as I prepared for this morning. Plagues, global pandemics, and other tragedies have wreaked their fair share of havoc throughout history. But though their effects have been severe, their effects are also ultimately temporary. Perspective came for me this week as I thought about the reality that there is a far greater, far more universal pandemic that has infected every single person who has ever lived, namely the global pandemic of original sin. The symptoms of this virus are brutal. Transmission is guaranteed. And its effect on the way that we live in the world can scarcely be measured. It has a 100% fatality rate. Worse yet, if you are not treated for this disease, not even death, not even death provides an escape from it. In fact, the symptoms only intensify after you succumb to death. The destructive nature of this disease actually continues forever without relief, 
without mercy and without end. But praise God. Praise God, the great physician. Praise him because he sent a cure. He sent a remedy for the disease of sin to the whole human race, namely his one and only son, our beloved Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood is able to heal even the sickest among us. Indeed, whose spirit is actually able to resurrect us from the dead. In today's passage, we are reminded that the greatest problem we face is not what comes at us from the outside that might infect us. Rather, we are reminded that what is happening on the inside infects every area of our lives and affects everything and everyone we care about. But the glorious good news that we see in the book of Ephesians and in our verses in particular is that the cure for our disease doesn't just make us well. It, or rather, he literally transforms our entire life from the inside out. Our passage is Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19. Now really, those are just the opening verses to this section, which goes from verse 17 of chapter 4 of Ephesians down to verse 24. So brothers and sisters, hear the word of Almighty God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, and holiness. And so, Father, I ask that right now you would help us to think about the things that are happening in our world with a right and sensitive and compassionate and confident perspective. Help us not to minimize the reality of the seriousness of what is happening. But I also pray that through our time together now, sitting under the authority of your word, you would increase our confidence to see this disease in its proper perspective. So lead us by your Spirit, I pray, in the blessed name of Jesus, amen. So most fundamentally, our verses, that is verses 17 through 19, are simply 
an exhortation to turn away from sin. Children, if you're joining us through the live stream, just just look at your Bibles at verse 17 here. You can see this just as easily as I can. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So Paul is warning us not to continue in our life of sin, but to turn away from it. Now verses 18 and 19 describe how the Gentiles walked, which is really just another way of saying how they lived. What we note from these verses is that the problem is not an an outside problem, but it's an inside one. Notice that the minds of the Gentiles and their hearts were ultimately the problem. Paul uses phrases like futile thinking and darkened understanding. Describes the heart as hardened and callous. This inside problem leads to increasingly bad behavior, which is exhibited on the outside as people become desensitized to sin and give themselves over to sensuality, even becoming greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But Paul is, of course, not just picking on the Gentiles. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, we were all in the same boat apart from Christ. So in context, our verses are a call to turn from our old life of sin before we met Christ and toward a new life, the life of God found in Christ. So let's, let's summarize our focus for this morning like this. In order to turn from our old life of sin to our new life in God, we must be born again, learn to walk again, and trust we will live again. In order to turn from our old life of sin to our new life in God, we must be born again, we must learn to walk again, and we must trust that we will live again. Now, because we're taking two weeks to walk through verses 17 through 24, I want to take time this week to to double-click on the phrase that basically summarizes the plight of the Gentile or the unbeliever apart from Christ, namely the phrase alienated from the life of God that we see here in verse 18. That's a provocative way of putting our situation before we came to Christ, isn't it? Alienated from the life of God. The idea is that we were strangers to the life of God or that the way Christians live was utterly foreign to us before we came to Christ. What I've been praying that we would see this morning is how radically different our life in Christ is compared to our old life. Even if for some of us it doesn't feel that way. 
For many of us, it is hard to even remember how we once thought compared to how we think now. And I think this is part of the reason why Paul often reminds believers what they were like before they met Jesus. For example, in Titus 3.3, Paul says, We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That sounds, well, miserable, to be honest. But he continues, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is the good news of the gospel. In other words, we were miserable in our sin until something happened to us. Something radical. Something supernatural. Something absolutely miraculous. We were regenerated or made alive again. We were born again through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in order for us to enter into the life of God. Something that radical had to happen to us. This is precisely what Paul described earlier in Ephesians 2. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends, this is the entry point for every person into the life of God. Recall the conversation Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus early in his ministry. In chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, Jesus said to him, Unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. He went on to say, Unless one is born of water, even the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Or we might say, he cannot enter the life of God. So, what if you're listening to this online, and frankly, you're dismissing it? Because all the, all the sin language just sounds so over the top. It sounds like such an overstatement, and it doesn't sound reflective of your personal situation. Or maybe language like, born again and made alive just sounds like Christian nonsense to you. Just silly. Well, that's exactly what it sounded like when Jesus was talking to the guy that he first told. His response was basically, seriously? Should a man crawl back into his mother's womb? How can these things possibly be true? But Jesus said to him, don't marvel at this. In other words, don't be surprised. That which seems too radical for rational human beings to accept is exactly what the Son of God says is, in fact, true. 
Just before John recorded this conversation with Nicodemus, he said that Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so, friend, what I am submitting to you this morning, especially if you are a person who is skeptical of Christianity and Christians in particular, and if if jargon like being born again rubs you the wrong way, what I'm saying to you is that Jesus knows what's going on inside of you. He knows how bad it really is. He knows that your problem is not really about what is happening kind of around you, but what is happening inside of you. He knows that your problem is not really with Christians, but with Him. But take heart that He knows you. Take heart that the Son of God knows you personally. He understands your heart better than you do. And He loves you. He loved all of us enough to tell us the truth about what is really wrong with us and what can change us. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So so if you can hear my voice, if God is actively working in your heart, then come to Jesus even now. Admit to Jesus that he does know your heart better than you do. Ask God to forgive your sin. Put your faith in Jesus. Ask him to change you. Enter into the life of God at this very moment. If today... If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts, for today is the day of salvation. This is the entry point for every person into the kingdom of God, and it can be yours today. So, this morning we're essentially looking at three aspects of the life of God that we are called to in Christ. A life from which we were alienated before we met Christ. The first aspect that we've been talking about is that in order to turn from our old life toward our new life in God, our hearts must be radically changed. In other words, we must be born again. Now, second, In order to turn from our old life of sin toward our new life in God, we must learn to walk again. So maybe you or maybe someone you know has been involved in a serious car accident or other type of accident at some point in their life and injured their their back and their legs you know that the first part of the recovery process comes from the radical surgery that needs to take place to reorder everything rightly again on the inside. But as soon as it's safe, the next often 
grueling aspect to full healing is the slow, plodding process of learning to walk again. Maybe you've seen inspiring videos of people going through this arduous process. It's a lot of hard work to learn to walk again. But according to every testimony, it is worth the effort. Learning to walk again often involves many people teaching you, many people encouraging you, and many people willing to walk with you in a similar way. Once we have been radically reordered on the inside, we need to learn to walk again as believers in a different way. Truthfully, we need all the help we can get. Even if that help has to at least temporarily come through live streaming or through Zoom as you seek to gather together in growth group throughout the week. And I strongly encourage you to stay connected in that way. Now, in our section, in our passage, Paul is continuing the theme he really began in chapter 4 and verse 1. Here he essentially says, basically in light of everything that I've been telling you through the whole first half of my letter, In light of this, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This theme of learning to walk again, but in a different way, dominates the the rest of chapter 4 and continues well into chapter 5. In 5.2, we need to learn to walk in love. In 5.8, we need to learn to walk as children of light. And in 5.16, we need to learn to walk wisely because the days are evil. Now, next week we'll get fully into the the put off and, and put on dynamic. But this week, in the big picture, I simply want us to see how crucial it is that the life of God includes a radical shift away from the way we once walked or lived, toward a new life, a new way of walking, a new way of living. Now back in Ephesians 2, where Paul introduced this theme, he said we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. So do you see the imagery here? We were walking in our former life, and we were oblivious. It was a course that many people had walked before us. You might think of hiking on a trail. It's always easier to follow the well-worn path But whether we were aware of it or not, before our hearts were made alive, we were also being led down this path. The problem is that if we had continued to follow this well-worn path, we would have ended up like the rather unfortunate herd of pigs who were nearby when Jesus cast out legion from the man in the land of the Gadarenes. And we eventually would have walked, or even run, straight off a cliff to our 
eternal death. How, how is this disaster avoided? Answer, by learning to follow a different path, illumined by the Word of God, a path that leads not to death, but to eternal life. O Lord, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. As Job said, when this lamp shone upon my head, by his light I walked through darkness. Brothers and sisters, this is the answer to the question about how we can navigate this difficult time. For many of us, it is a darkened time. At this point in your Christian life, if you have walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you probably realize that becoming a Christian certainly does not remove us from the difficulties of this world. Rather, it provides an opportunity for us as the church to shine as a city on a hill. So during this time, let our trust in God and our sacrificial love serve as lights to the world as we point others to the one who himself declared, I am the light of the world. As we learn to walk down a path that that is darkened at the moment, there is uncertainty ahead. We need to learn to, to ignore or even to flee from the prince of the power of the year and all of his distractors. They are constantly beckoning us to, to take a detour off the well-lit path, much like, much like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress. Satan's plan is to, to create suspicion, and his call to us is to, to begin to doubt God's goodness in times of trial. His call is toward fear. His call is to self-preservation. No one else is going to take care of you. You'd better do it. Certainly not God. His call is toward isolation, stirred up by fear. Now we want to be wise, but, but we ought not to be isolated, so stay connected to the best of your ability. Satan's call is to, is to waste the opportunity that this unique time affords to, to reassess our priorities. Satan's call is to put a basket over the light of God's glorious word. Satan's call is to mute the power of God's sovereign promises that we and all the world need desperately at a time like this. But by God's grace, through the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we can say no. We can say no to doubt and no to distraction and no to sin. By God's grace, we can turn away from this, this dead-end detour and stay on the well-lit path. By God's grace, through the power of the Spirit, we can continue to walk in the reality that often through uncertainty and trial, our Lord teaches us to rely not on ourselves, but on Him. That is God who raises the dead. 
in order to do this, we need to learn to follow a different leader, namely the Holy Spirit. This really is the overarching argument Paul is making in Galatians 5. Here are some highlights of that argument towards the end of the chapter. He says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, How needed is that today? Patience. You have a lot more people in your home on a daily basis from hour to hour and from moment to moment. Fruit of the Spirit is patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Against these things, there is no law. So, brothers and sisters, let's put into practice our our spirit-filled, our spirit-saturated, our spirit-led gifts so that spirit-wrought fruits would result. Paul goes on to say that if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. Which brings us to our final aspect of the life of God drawn from Ephesians. One of the biblical realities that frees us not to fear economic ruin or even death itself is that as believers, we trust that even when this life ends, we will live again. This reality has been guaranteed for believers because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Think about it in terms of the language of this passage. Christ, the new man, has replaced the old man, Adam. When we put off the sin we inherited from Adam, and when we by faith put on the righteousness we have inherited from our new representative head, Christ, we have entered the new life of God. The miracle of our new life, the life of God to which we have been called, is that this life with God has begun now. And it is a life that will never end. Paul said at the end of Romans 8 that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor anything else in all creation, which includes coronavirus, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The kingdom of God. The eternal life of God was inaugurated by Jesus in his coming to earth, and it will culminate under the new heaven on the new earth, which we will celebrate forever in his presence. On that day, there will be no more fear, no more sorrow, no more tears, 
No more worry. No more disease. And no more sin. A day is coming when every tear will be wiped away. A day is coming when joy will be the new normal. A day is coming when we will rise to a new and everlasting experience of our life with God and with one another. On that day, we will rise as Christ was risen. On that day, we will rise to declare his rule and reign. On that day, no curse will be able to assault God's throne. On that day, we will stand to testify. On that day, we will rise to glorify his name forever. Martin Luther once said he had only two days on his calendar. Today and that day. Until that day, let us trust in the promises of the Father to sustain us. Let us trust in the sufficiency of the blood of the Son to wash away our sin. And let us trust in the Holy Spirit who has sealed us for that day. So let us trust God to the glory of the Father and to the glory of the Son, and to the glory of the Holy Spirit. Amen, amen, and amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we have a lot to be concerned about, and we have a lot to be confident in. And so would you lead us by your Spirit? Father, would you lead us by your Spirit, especially at a time like this? May the church's peace and may the church's joy, despite our circumstances, shine as lights to the world, as a city on a hill. Father, until that day, the day that we rise because Christ has risen, I pray that you would strengthen us and help us to love one another well in your name. So be glorified in our homes today. Be glorified among our people today and be glorified in our worship now. We pray in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.